Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk evening with the expert. This talk is being recorded and will be available on the TalkShoe website for one week. Participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk will be available for sale on the Spiral Foundation website at www.thespiralfoundation.org. Participants may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. This talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. And tonight's topic in our Sensory Integration and Mental Health Concerns series is Developmental Trauma Disorder and the SMART Model. And hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Theresa May Benson, and I'm the Executive Director of the Spiral Foundation. And joining us tonight is Dr. Elizabeth Warner. Uh, Dr. Warner is a psychotherapist at the Trauma Center at the Justice Resource Institute in Boston here. She has had uh, a psychotherapy practice with adults, adolescents, and children uh, in Brookline for the past 25 years. And her specialization is in the area of child and adolescent development, family therapy, and the impact of adults uh, on parenting. And her special interests include adoption and adoptive families, and the special nature and implications of that attachment, um, as well as the development of effective treatments for complex trauma in children and adolescents. And she spent 15 years working with severely disordered children, including traumatized children and their parents, and using innovative methodologies in the use of videotape at the Language and Cognitive Development Center. Uh, in addition, she has worked in psychiatric inpatient and outpatient settings at Boston University Medical Center, in schools, mental health clinics, residential treatment settings, um, providing treatment, teaching, and consultation. So we're very, very delighted to have Dr. Warner with us this evening uh, to discuss uh, developmental trauma disorder and the SMART model. So w welcome, Dr. Warner. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this, and I know um, we have a lot of interest um, from people uh, on this topic. Um, as I'm sure you're very aware, um, trauma and attachment problems uh, in children uh, seems to have become a very uh, big, hot topic uh, of discussion, I'd say, in, in the last oh, six or seven years in particular. And uh, I know we're hearing a lot more from the occupational therapists uh, as well as from psychotherapists and teachers um, about seeing more and more of these children um, uh, with problems in mm -hmm. areas and feeling kind of desperate uh, <laughs> to find some information on how to uh, best address the needs in these kids. Um, do you feel like you've seen that as well, or is this 
my own imagination. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the emergence of of this awareness? Is yeah. That what you're yeah. Um, you know, I'm sort of embedded in the world of um, the trauma field, and I think that has been going, you know, that's been developing uh, over the last number of years. But one thing I've seen is a deepening in terms of understanding regarding trauma and children, uh, children and adolescents, I should say. So sort of moving down from the adult world into the world of development, children and adolescents. Um, and that's uh, a wonderful thing, um, I think. Um, and, you know, we're beginning to really deepen our understanding of what the traumatic experience does to the child, uh, not just in the moment, but in terms of their developmental trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's all to the good. Right. And, you know, there, there have been some people working on this for many, many years, but I think it's in it's in the consciousness consciousness now in a different kind of way so I think that's terrific yeah I'd agree I mean I know I feel like I've if I if I reflect back on the children I've treated over the last 30 years I could point out numerous kids that I would have thought probably have trauma now that Mm -hmm. we never really Mm -hmm. thought very much about it uh, you know, you knew some some bad things had happened, or that some of these kids had had tough times, mm-hmm. um, but you really didn't think about it as a um, separate kind of an issue that kind of needed to be dealt with, um, at least not from our our profession personally. Um, so it, it's great to see that there's a lot more awareness of how uh, everybody working with these kids can. Uh, have a role in trying to support them. Yes, because I, I, because I think the children that we're talking about are showing up in everybody's offices. They're showing up, you know, for you as OTs. They're showing up in special education. They're showing up in the schools um, as presenting particular kinds of problems. Um, so it, it's these are issues confronting everybody working with kids these days. Um, and I think that having a framework is a very helpful thing. Well, and uh, that's a great place to start because um, I think uh, this whole topic of developmental trauma disorder is uh, a very interesting topic and, and one that uh, we all should, should be aware of. And um, it's not, I know it's gaining more momentum and gaining a broader acceptance, but it's still not something I think that's 100% known about. Um, and I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about um, developmental trauma disorder. And uh, I know you're very familiar with it, working with Dr. Vander Koch um, over at the Trauma Center. And um, so I was hoping you could tell us uh, initially a little bit about um, what the Trauma Center does mm-hmm. uh, and then perhaps um, tell us a little bit about how this uh, diagnosis or this I, well, I guess you, it's considered a this disorder, um, you know, what it is. <laughs> yeah, what, what it is, yeah. yeah. Well, the trauma, the trauma center has been around now for almost 30 years, and it, um, it has a three-pronged mission um, of uh, doing clinical work, uh, doing a lot of education and training, and doing research. So it's following, you know, those three areas like all air, each area is getting a lot of attention within the trauma center. 
Um, but one of the things that has come out of the work in the last bunch of years, and I think in 2005 there was an issue of um, the, um, let's see, the psychiatric annals that came out where this whole notion of a de- something called, we would, well, would come to call a developmental trauma disorder was first put out there in a, in a publication, so to speak. But what was happening is that people who were in this field were noticing that we were running across kids who had multiple diagnoses, things like oppositional disorder and ADHD and conduct disorder, you know, various kinds of uh, de- depression, bipolar disorder. So we were running into many kids with multiple diagnoses and therefore sort of multiple treatment plans, if you will, mm-hmm. um, sometimes multiple medications. Um, but there seemed to be something common in their etiology, which is that they, many of them had what we're now calling interpersonal complex trauma, meaning they'd had many exposures to traumatic experiences, usually not just one, you know. So usually many um, many episodes of, of traumatic experiences in their, in their development. And these, these were the kids that were getting these many diagnoses. But, of course, you have to ask the question to find out, right? So you have right. to be asking about early experience. And those questions were not always being asked. So people didn't know sometimes that when they were diagnosing somebody with bipolar um, that they had maybe been physically or sexually abused. Um, but the quest, as the questions were getting asked, we began to see this common thread. And also common thread really in the sort of symptom pictures of these kids. Now, the, the symptom pictures are pretty broad. Um, they, and this is why there have been so many diagnoses attached to these kids. But there, is, there, there was a way in which we, you, you, they began to pull all of these different pictures together, these different symptom pictures together, began to see some common themes. And this is, this is the way I put it. I think the common theme is dysregulation um, and dysregulation in a lot of domains. So what people see is a dysregulation of affect and behavior. Those are the things that stand out to people. The behavioral dysregulation is kind of what shows up first often. It is what, not shows up first, but is what people notice. So you may get kids who are acting out in some way, are explosive and having sudden episodes of, of anger or temper tantrums, kids who are engaging in oppositional behavior, rule-breaking, that sort of thing. Um, but these are forms of behavioral dysregulation, and underneath that we see a problem with, with regulating emotion, regulating affect. And that's a very common problem for kids with early traumatic experiences. Um, so there's this dysregulation which we can see of affect and behavior, but underneath that there's also a dysregulation and difficulty in managing attention. Um, and that's why some of the kids, many of the kids get a diagnosis of, uh, diagnosis of ADD or ADHD because there are difficulties with maintaining, um, maintaining attention. And there's this kind of, um, uh, well, we can call it a dysregulation of, of uh, attention, if you will. But underlying this is often... Um, there are things like dissociation, memory disturbances, inabilities to concentrate, inabilities to follow through on tasks, um, lots of problems with exe- all kinds of all the executive functions, 
um, and a kind of impulsivity, um, which is a problem with inhibition, um, difficulties with cognitive flexibility, difficult, their difficulties with memory manifest as working memory problems. Um, so you can see how this is affecting the attentional system and moving into the cognitive systems as well. So many of the kids have get diagnosed with learning disabilities. They're having lots of difficulties with learning, and often with processing information. Um, and so you, you can see how the symptom picture starts to cross into various developmental domains. And then, of course, it affects their capacity to have relationships. Most of, many of these kids have difficulties with relationships. And, it, you know, often if you track back in their history, they've had attachment disruptions. Um, so in some cases, kids have been removed from um, uh, difficult family situations, or in some cases, they have been passed from caregiver to caregiver. Um, and they have not had consistent caregiving. In other cases, there's been neglect. Um, and so they have not had a consistent caregiver so to engage with at a social and emotional level. And so they're lacking in what I like to call the basic rhythms of engagement that start to develop at a very, very, you know, immediately, immediately at birth, early rhythms of engagement are forming. But if you've been in a neglectful situation or you've been in an abusive situation, those rhythms of engagement are, are disrupted. So we see the relationship problems that the kids have. Um, so we began to see that these, these symptoms were co-occurring following childhood interpersonal trauma. So they were showing up together. Um, and that's where the notion of a, a diagnosis that would pull all of these things together began to sort of develop. If PTSD was being given at many, in, in some cases to kids, but it didn't begin to really cover the waterfront in terms of the types of problems that we were seeing. And it, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, from my understanding, one of the big differences between the uh, that that PTSD uh, concept, which is mm -hmm. is something that kind of was talked about a lot initially, and this uh, the DTD is uh, really that um, sort of uh, longer-term uh, exposure to trauma. Um, isn't it that PTSD is usually considered to have sort of a, an identifiable event um, that happens and then you're considered to like be reacting to that specific event, whereas with the developmental trauma disorder, as you mentioned, there's more that sort of long-term exposure to uh, a traumatic trauma or, or neglect so that it's, it's not exactly after the fact. It's kind of sometimes ongoing. Right, right, and it's chronic. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to think about the differences between the two. Um, so, you know, the PTSD, some of the measures of PTSD ask about specific events. Right, a specific event, and you know when somebody like me looks at that, I say specific event. What specific event? There are multiple events, many of which we might not even know about. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't have applicability at that at that level. Um, but also, it's not a developmental framework. Right. 
PTSD is not a developmental framework. And for any of us and all your, you know, all your fellow OTs who are working from a developmental perspective, it does not capture the many ways that trauma affects develop all the developmental do- domains. Right. Um, and I was wondering if we could talk just a little bit about um, types of trauma. Because mm-hmm, uh, sure. um, I think that's something I've come to have a little bit better understanding about. I know when uh, I think most of us think trauma, we think of big trauma. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you got raped or you got abused or, um, mm-hmm. you know, you were in some massive, horrible accident or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Sort of these mm-hmm. big things. Um, mm-hmm. But my understanding is is that very often this can actually be little, what we call small trauma, um, kind of things that um, maybe are more yelling or, um, like you said, not even what we might consider like, you know, the, the, dog, the boy who was a dog level of neglect, but just, um, you know, neglectful situations, things like that. Am I on the right track with that? Well, you know, it's interesting. People do talk about the big T, little T. I think the distinction is hard to, very hard to make. Uh-huh. But we, one of the things that we are discovering is that things like neglect, things like psychological abuse or emotional maltreatment, as we're calling, are having as much impact, if not more impact, than, say, physical or sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Now, we do know sexual and physical abuse have enormous impact. I'm not, I don't want to minimize that. But the interesting thing is that a, a psychological abuse can also have a major impact across all domains for kids, and including impact on brain uh, development. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's important to remember that yelling and uh, insulting and name-calling um, have huge impact as well. Well, and the um, bullying as well. I know there's we, more and more research coming out on the impact of bullying. That's right. Bullying also has an impact. And Marty Teicher, who has a lab at McLean's, has been looking at all the various kinds of abuse and the developmental effects based on time period in development when they occurred. And he's taken a look at bullying and discovered that, yes, indeed, that can be highly impactful on kids. Right. And I I guess one of the reasons I wanted to bring this topic up is is that, um, you know, we can get these kids coming in uh, who demonstrate some of these trauma um, symptoms and it doesn't always mean that we should be thinking, oh, you know, one of their parents, like, physically assaulted them or physically abused them, um, because that might not be the situation. It, it might be something totally different um, that could be the background. Um, and That's right. That's right. 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 I think it's important as clinicians to keep our minds open right. um, and and not jump to conclusions. Well, and kind of even in relationship with that, uh, I know uh, it's OTs. We're, I think, becoming more aware of um, how for individuals who are very sensory defensive in particular, that mm-hmm. just sort of <laughs> everyday life um, and the assault mm-hmm. of 
all of these sensory um, inputs that are so challenging can actually be traumatizing for some of these kids. Well, I imagine that's true. I mean, I, there was a period of time when I worked at the Language and Cognitive Development Center when I worked with autistic kids. Mm-hmm. And I know that autistic kids come to sensory integration a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, so I'm very aware of the way in which sensory stimuli can be um, traumatizing, if you will, to, to many kids, um, autistic kids among them. Um, and you, but you see these sensory, some sensory sensitivities in traumatized kids as well. Exactly. Um, and, but it sometimes takes a while to figure out where that sensitivity is coming from. You know, is this a true sensory processing disorder? Is this trauma-related? It sometimes takes a little bit of work to kind of figure that out in a little time. Right. That's excellent. Um, so one of the other things I wanted to talk a little bit about was uh, what you alluded to was um, how trauma does affect brain function. Um, and I know there's a lot of different models out there these days. Um, like you mentioned, Marty Teicher. I know Bruce Perry has been working on some things. Um, does the DTD model kind of have any particular thoughts about that? Um, the DTD model, I would say, is is partially basing its its sort of framework on the fact that we now know that there are these impacts on brain development. I mean, we we now are developing, you know, the empirical evidence that that is indeed the case. Mm-hmm. But the so we we know that this is underlying some of the problems that we're seeing. So, for example, Teicher has shown the way in which the corpus callosum, in certain instances, is underdeveloped. I don't know if that's exactly the word he would use, but if you look at the fMRIs, to me it looks like the corpus callosum is sort of, um, I guess, underdeveloped is the word that I would use. And you know, that's an essential. Um, uh, structure, if you will, for communication between the left and right hemispheres. So you can imagine kind of the effects of that. Um, but it, when you say, is the DTD model based on that? I, I don't think it's based on that, but it's certainly supported by what we're, you know, what we're learning about the brain. Right. Well, and I know Marty um, talked about the um, damage that was done to the arcuate fasciculus. Mm, yes, I find that fascinating. Is, that's very fascinating because that's just such a prime structure for the connections with the frontal lobe. Right. And right. so all you know, all of these frontal lobe sorts of functions that you're talking about, it's like, oh wow, you know, there's sort of that connection there. And um, Carl Anderson was also talking about um, uh, problems with the vermis in the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, which, you know, your cerebellum is your regulator. You know, that's your rhythm generator. And, uh, right. So, you know, there's there's problems there that potentially um, could be related. It's, uh, yes, and, and one of the things that we see in, in our um, context is kids who have a lot of body dysregulation. In other words, they're, and this is something I'm sure you all are terribly familiar with, is kids who really don't, Number one, have very good control over their bodies, but they don't have a good body schema. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they don't they don't localize pain. They don't use their body isn't working well together. They, they run into they bump into things and it's as if they don't even notice. Their spatial navigation isn't very good. So we see that a lot in traumatized kids, and I know that that's something that you all work with uh, in in your clinics. Right. I mean, those are just so classic for praxis, you know, and. When you mm-hmm. look at these these brain areas that are related, um, being affected by trauma, it's it's all those those basics SI areas uh, and praxis areas. So it's it's not a wonder that we see a lot of those comorbid problems. Yes, I think you, we're seeing some of the same things that you see a lot of. I mean, one distinction that I want to make, which is something that we notice, is between sort of I guess well. I'm not sure this is the best way to frame it, but short-term or immediate effects and long-term effects of of trauma. So, you know, when we're talking about, let's say, damage to the corpus callosum or underdevelopment of the corpus callosum or to the arcuate fasciculus, you know, we're talking about impacts over time on the actual architecture of, of the brain. And that that is certainly something that we're, you know, we're learning about. But I also noticed the, the immediate effects. So, for example, what we see, and this is something we've learned through the SMART model, um, and we learned through a, partially through our work with Jane. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when Jane first came to work with us, what we were interested in was the uh, problem of arousal regulation. How could we help our kids regulate better? Right. Because they, they, they were so dysregulated that we really couldn't work with them in standard play therapy models for example, or or talk therapies. They just weren't available um, for those kinds of modalities. But what we discovered, once we were using some of the tools that we had gained, some of the ways of understanding how movement works and how movement for kids can be regulating, um, what happened was there was a change in psychological state in the child. And it was almost immediate. And with that change in psychological state, you often began to see much better functioning almost immediately. So, for example, you, a, very, a kid would come in the room very agitated, upset, distressed, disorganized, bouncing around the room, unable to settle on something. And then once they began to, with the therapist's help, to engage with some of this, you know, we have very simple equipment in our room. We have some fitness balls and some crash pillows and, you know, a few things, nothing like your wonderful clinics. Uh-huh. But it, once they began to engage with this, this equipment and began to play with it in a more um, sort of organized way, they would become psychologically more organized. And suddenly, they would be talking more clearly. They would be relating to us more clearly. They would be showing some evidence of executive functioning. So, for example, they might start setting up an obstacle course that requires some complex, you know, planning. Um, and so there would be this immediate shift in their functioning, mm-hmm. which I find very, very hopeful right. in kids. Now, you know, we haven't tested this out with adults. I don't know, you know, what happens when, when you've been much more, you, you, it, the effects of the trauma have been much more chronic. But in kids, we are seeing these shifts very quickly. And that is what got, got us so excited about 
what we had learned here because once we were able to use these tools of regulation, suddenly kids were more available for for therapy with us. Um, and that's when the trauma therapy part comes into play. Um, but I make this distinction between the long-term effects of trauma and then the short-term effects of trauma. The short-term is the child has trouble processing feelings. So if they had a bad time at school, they might come into therapy in this very disorganized, agitated state. Yeah, I think that, you know, from an SI perspective, um, what we do really well is deal with the long-term effects um, Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. of sensory because, uh, you know, we feel like the sensory integration changes the brain and that Mm -hmm. we can help reorganize and and support some of that architecture. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the sensory strategies can perhaps be helpful with that, like you said, immediate regulation, which can then open them up to be able to do more of the the actual cognitive processing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, oh, that's a nice way to put it. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, because I, I was, yeah. No, yeah. I think that's helpful. So um, as we think about uh, these things, um, you know, if, we have um, teachers and some psychologists or mental health professionals with us this evening, as well as many OTs. And, um, you know, if, if a teacher or a therapist or someone has one of these kids coming in and they think that there's something going on, uh, do you have any <laughs> pearls of wisdom to uh, help them um, kind of know how to address it, you know, who they might uh, refer to how they might approach a, a situation with a family, um, especially as we talked earlier, knowing that this you know may not be an overt family situation that's the problem. Maybe there's something else going on. Um, I'm sure you've run into this. <laughs> well, you know what what I find works, and I I am advising therapists to do this all the time too, is to if you're if something is coming up for you and it keeps coming up and it feels like a something where you don't you're not sure you quite understand but it's something that's concerning you maybe in the back of your mind you're wondering has something happened to this child what i usually suggest is to sit down with parents and just describe what you're saying just describe it as you know as as you're as you're noticing it and and ask the parents, do they ever see this at home? Because it's, it's, you're curious about it and it's not quite making sense to you or something like that. So that you begin a shared um, conversation with the parent mm-hmm. uh, and you, you begin to sort of um, create a, col- a little collaboration with them about what might be going on with their child. Um, because I think that collaboration is in any case going to be very, very important. Um, anything that you're going to need to do or have done for the child is going to require the caregiver's help in doing that. Um, so that my my first step is always to just find a way to sit down with the parent and say, you know, I'm seeing this and I'm wondering about it, and I'm not not necessarily sure to make what to make of it. What do you, what do you, what are your thoughts? Do you see this at home? Have you seen this in other settings? So that's one thing that I think about. 
Um, are there, what are the other kinds of things that you think would be, um, might come up for people that would be helpful? Um, I think sometimes um, kids say things um, that therapists have concerns about, um, or sometimes they get um, parents might, say something um, that might indicate sort of a difficult family situation. And it, it may be simply, you know, a, a nasty divorce um, mm-hmm. with, you know, mother and father having a lot of screaming and yelling or, you know, kinds of things. Um, and, uh, you know, them being perhaps concerned about how some of those things are impacting uh, mm-hmm. on the child's performance. Um, I think those are some of the things that we've sort of had come up in discussion um, in our clinic. Well, you know, the, one of the words I like to use is noticing. Oh, <laughs> what, do you, what do you notice? Because, I, I, the, again, I would want to be asking a parent to see whether they can reflect on, or first of all, can they notice, and then can they reflect on what's being seen. So it, it, let's say a parent says, you know, we're going through this nasty divorce, and I just want you to know that that's going on. I would ask the parents, so what are you noticing in your child during this time? And then, you know, ask them to kind of expand on that so that you're, you're kind of getting the parent to be an observer with you of what the impact on, the, on their child is of this nasty divorce. I like the idea of sort of the uh, the, uh, the curiosity approach. Yeah. Uh, because I know that's something Dan Hughes talks a lot about when he works mm-hmm. with the kids, is just really approaching them with sort of that attitude of curiosity. Oh, you know, I, I'm noticing this. And so that, that seems very um, consistent. Um, and and a, that's a nice way of, of kind of approaching things. Um, then we kind of have these other kids where you know that there's things going on. Um, sometimes parents will disclose that there has been some sort of a trauma or problem, but won't get into details with the therapist um, so that you don't really quite know what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any sort of do's and don'ts um, for therapists around, you know, things to to definitely do with or definitely not do with kids? Have there been things that you've kind of um, come up with, uh, especially knowing that some of these kids can be kind of volatile or, um, you know, may have had difficult situations? Just sort of what kind of advice could you give people around that? Well, I'm not sure if you're talking. I mean, there's obviously one kind of situation where all, you know, professionals are obligated to make report. Like right. if, if there's some kind of um, revealing of some kind of abusive situation. Mm-hmm. And I do recommend if ever that comes up in a therapy session that the person always have someone they can sort of consult with about it. Mm-hmm. So run it by someone else. Talk to another professional about it and and, you know, get your thinking clear about your concern and feedback from somebody else. So that's one kind of situation. But the other thing I, I would suggest is having, 
the names of, you know, two or three people, uh, therapists, for example, psychologists or, you know, out there who you feel can, would be good um, resources uh, for a family to go to um, that you could sort of make a very personal referral to um, and feel comfortable doing it. I think one thing in the field today is it's often very hard for people to find a therapist. Right. So a parent will say, I called 10 people and, you know, half of them didn't call me back and no one, you know, um, and the rest of them didn't take my insurance. And that's very frustrating. And for some people, that will just stop them in their tracks, of course. Um, so I think it's helpful for any partic- any um, clinician to have in mind, you know, just a couple of clinicians that you really trust. You can call up and say, you know, would you be able to see these parents um, uh, on, re- you know, relatively short notice? I don't mean in an emergency situation, but, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I'm, I'm concerned about uh, something and I'd like them to t- have someone to talk to. Right. And then you would get permission to just share a little bit of what your concern was. Okay. Well, um, I think we're beginning to get some questions on treatment. Um, and okay. Now's a good time to kind of move into that because I do want to talk about the SMART model. Um, okay. Let me just go over a couple of questions. I think we've actually addressed a few of these things. Um, one of our listeners is interested uh, about the impact of indirect traumas like exposure to domestic disputes, et cetera, and that's what I was referring to. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think we've kind of uh, hopefully addressed that for them. Um, This is actually, I think, a good question. Um, For us as OTs, if we think that the sensory dysregulation is primarily related to trauma, uh, you know, should we be diagnosing it as a sensory processing issue? Um, Should we call it somebody else, Uh, you know, something else? and how does that affect treatment, which I think we're going to get into a little bit with the, uh, with the SMART model. And um, I think another question around that is how can we sort of uh, tease out a little bit, uh, and I, I actually think we've addressed this a little bit, uh, what's sort of the sensory processing issue and what's maybe more the trauma issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, let's see what else. Well, yeah. You know, one of the things that Jane Kumar taught us about, she had this concept of sensory satiation. Yes. Um, which, I, dear, I mean, shall I assume that your listeners kind of know what that is? Yes. Yeah, okay. So that was a really interesting and useful, useful concept for those of us trained as mental health therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So one of the things that has been helpful to us is to notice when a child gets gets satiated and when a child doesn't ever seem to get satiated. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a, a small little clue to us. When does this child, do we think this child may have a sensory processing disorder that needs a different kind of attention um, than we can give the child? And I think having those little sort of markers have been helpful to us you know, at one point we were talking about could we, is there a way that could we as mental health therapists work in tandem with the OT right? so that we could kind of parse these things out together. Right. Um, and, of course, 
this is where, you know, money comes into it. It was it, It's hard to make that model work from a financial point of view. Right. But wh- what I've learned is that many of the families that I work with who are savvy find their way to sensory integration along the path, either before they've come to us or, you know, sometimes while they've come to us. And right. that gives that opportunity for us to have a conversation back and forth about what's going on. Right. Um, you know, who, where do we think this is emanating from? Right. And, of course, probably in some cases it's coming from both in some right. ways, you know, that as a function of long-term, let's say as a function of long-term neglect. Right. And I think we see this in a lot of the kids that have had a lot of neglect, say kids who came from orphanages or other um, highly neglectful situations, they have a lot of sensory uh, problems that really need intensive help both from SI and from mental health. Right, and I think that gets into a couple of the questions that we have popping up on the screen here. Um, in terms of um, co-treatment, definitely, mm-hmm. uh, I think across the board, we would recommend that these individuals see both. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we have opportunities to work together at the same time, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, you know, I. I think a great um, opportunity um, to have happen, and that's really where Jane was going with, you know, her safe place model um, mm-hmm. was, you know, having those opportunities for simultaneous treatment um, in the same session. Um, but if that things like that are not available, at least both professionals seeing these kids so that you can go back and forth uh, with each other because it, it probably is both both issues. So in terms of diagnosis, I'd say, yeah, there's probably going to be a sensory processing disorder, but there's probably also the trauma thing. Um, Just like, you know, we can have sensory processing disorders and autism. Right. That's right. That's right. And that's definitely the way that it goes for many of the kids that we see here in Boston, Mm -hmm. or at least at the trauma center, but I don't think that's typical around the country. Right. Because I do, I do trainings at lots of different places, and I'll say to them, so do you have access to a sensory integration clinic or OT? And sometimes they'll say yes, but sometimes they'll say no. Right. And that always feels like a, a sort of a, a, lo, you know, a problem from my end because I think generally the kids can benefit, often they can benefit from both. Right. Now, we do have a question about the uh, sensory satiation. What we're talking mm-hmm. about with that is um, being able to provide these kids with a sufficient amount um, of information to be able to meet those sensory needs. Um, and we've had a lot of kids um, who need huge amounts of input uh, before that input put is really meaningful um, to them. Um, so that's that's kind of what we're talking about. But um, what I do want to spend the rest of our time talking about um, is the SMART model um, mm-hmm. and um, what you can tell us about that. Uh, can you tell us about some of the core concepts about it and, um, you know, who can use it, who should be using it, um, training, you know, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. 
Well, so so what happened was we developed this model specifically for kids with complex trauma and adolescents with complex trauma because we needed a model that could uh, could accommodate to the fact that these kids could not contain themselves in ordinary play therapies, ordinary sort of um, talk therapies. They could, many of them were not able to talk to another person in any kind of consistent way, not because they didn't have language capacity, but because they were not sort of emotionally available to do that. And we had these kids with lots of regulation problems. And so we, we created a room, and we created a, a large room with Jane's help, larger than the average mental health clinician's office. Um, where we put gym mats on the floor and we put some very basic equipment in there. Not, like I said, nothing fancy. Um, you know, crash pillows, a tunnel, um, balance, a balance beam low on the floor, lots of some physio balls, that kind of thing. And we began to see kids in this context and to videotape them to see what we learned. And what we learned is what I referenced before, which is that with this kind of access to primarily to vestibular proprioceptive and tactile inputs, um, so these sensory motor inputs um, that you all take for granted, but really mental health clinicians knew very little about. Right. But taking into account those kinds of inputs, these kids would be able to regulate much more quickly, and with that, they were much more accessible, not only to being able to talk, but being able to symbolize their experience, to communicate their experience in a variety of ways and to process their trauma. So it's not all processing trauma verbally. Often it's non-verbally, either through the kinds of games that they create when they're more regulated or through what we call, we named it embodied dramatic play. So many of the younger kids create these dramatic play scenarios where they have the therapist be somebody and they play a role and maybe the caregiver plays a role and they develop these little stories which we all are a part of. Often they have a traumatic theme to them. And this is a way in which they work out or work through some of their traumatic experiences. So we developed this. Um, it's a spiral. Um, and there seems to be a spiraling back and forth. Sorry, we didn't mean to take your <laughs> the spiral foundation. They took our it, name, did you? <laughs> it, well, it, was, it, it actually was the visual image that <laughs> captured what we were seeing, which is yeah. this sort of spiraling back and forth between the regulation and the trauma processing. And that as the child was able to go back and forth between these two, there was a, what we call a widening of their window of tolerance a wider tolerance for for emotion, a wider tolerance for various yeah. kinds of thoughts, for different for all kinds of experience that they were either highly avoidant of, they were easily triggered by, um, they were activated by in some way. So they increased their tolerance for for various parts of experience that otherwise they were at, they were triggered by. Right. Um, so it, it happens through this process over time, both within session and then over time in, in the therapy. But this is a mental health therapy. It's meant as a psychotherapy. Right, um, and that, that was one of my questions because I understand that it's, it's a therapy for psychotherapists, correct? 
That's right. It's a psych- psychotherapy. It is adding immensely to the tools that psychotherapists have available to them. Um, you know, psychotherapists have been taking kids out to playgrounds for years. It's not that that's entirely new, but they didn't have a way to think about what the kids were doing and what the kids were seeking, the kind of movement they were seeking. And that's where that's where these strategies that Jane taught us about has been so helpful, that indeed these traumatized kids are seeking a lot of proprioceptive input. They're seeking, often seeking a lot of vestibular input, sometimes deep pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we ha- finally had a way to think about, to look at what we were seeing them do and then to help them organize what they were doing in a way that would meet their, meet their need, meet that sensory need. Um, is what, you know, what we were learning. So we began to look at some of their behaviors as sensory seeking okay. as opposed to problematic, which was right. a huge shift. Right. But it is a mental health, you know, form of treatment. That is how it's intended. And we've been training everything, you know, mental health um, people who are everything from, you know, master's level to PhDs, and even every once in a while a psychiatrist shows up. Right. And I, I think that's a, a good point. And I think um, I know many of the OTs in the audience are, are interested in these kinds of things because I think there's a real need for um, a model um, for sensory-based therapists mm-hmm. to be able to meet the trauma needs of the kids in their sessions. Not that we're, we intend to do trauma, you know, psychotherapy, yeah. but to better educate us on how to uh, support the trauma needs of these kids. Well, let me comment on that because there's one very important way that I think that OT contributes to this, and that is that as the kids start to feel better about themselves, they, well, not as they start to feel about, better about themselves, but as they develop more body competencies, mm-hmm. In, and I watch it. I see it in our in our therapy sessions. As they start to feel more competent in their bodies and they start to feel better about themselves, you start to see this whole kind of flowering of their sense of self. And I think that's where OT comes in big time because many of these kids don't have a lot of self-control over their bodies. They're not able to participate in gymnastics lessons and swimming lessons and all those kinds of things, partly because they're too anxious or shut down to participate, but also because they don't have the body organization that they need. So I think when, as you help kids develop competencies in their body, it better prepares them to sort of participate in the world in a way that they're generally not able to. So I think that's a part of a trauma treatment, actually, is helping kids feel more competent in their bodies. I see distinct shifts in them when they feel like they come in and they show me that they can do a somersault. And then they want to do, you know, one somersault after another. Right. Um, and then that, that, that's a huge contributor to their well-being. That's a really, that's, that's a really good point because it's, that's such a core component of sensory integration intervention is that, that just right challenge, building that, you know, building that mm-hmm. child-directedness. Um, and that self-esteem um, with those That's kids. right. That's right. And I think that's where you come in. This, this issue of competencies and mastery is so 
so essential to a child feeling good at the at the body level, mm-hmm. and 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 that's that is where I feel like, it, you know, and I've seen that time and again actually with kids that I'm working with, where as they as they develop more sense of, oh hey I can, you know I can do three somersaults in a row or I can manage to hold myself up on my arms and do a handstand, you see a whole shift in their affect. Um, which now, is, is is part of his trauma treatment. Yeah. Now, um, you know, if and I, I know we've all been in these situations, as you know, because we do often get the kids in these places where we're doing um, imaginative play. You know, we're, we're they mm-hmm. are regulated. They're um, mm-hmm. often you know at that just right challenge. Um, sometimes these trauma reenactments come up or mm-hmm. kids will say things and the therapist is all of a sudden like, uh, <laughs> what do I do with this? <laughs> um, you know, so that, you know, the child is, is kind of starting to, to do some of that processing in a way. Um, what can you tell some of the teachers or, or therapists to kind of, what should they do? How should they, um, you know, what's, what, do you have any strategies to help them know what, yeah. you know, how, how to manage that situation if it comes up? Well, I'm sure that it comes up. I mean, we used to talk about this with Jane because that is what happens. There's a sort of a natural, almost healing um, uh, force, if you will, which is just what you said, is the kids will get more regulated. This sort of trauma material starts to appear. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think these are just totally at a loss as to what to do about that. Well, I think first of all, you know, you can follow the child and support the game they're involved in unless you think they're reenacting something, mm-hmm. a bad thing. And you'll have a bad feeling about it if that's the case. Mm-hmm. And you might want to try to shift the game. But I would take note of it for sure and see if you in your in your own head because it's something that you want to take hold of and it might be a time at which you would want especially if it starts to happen there you know repeatedly then there's some need in the child to work through something that's happened to them and that might be the point at which you would make a referral for um, a psychotherapy for the child a trauma therapy for the child um, you know if it keeps popping up but sometimes kids are working something through, and it's, they, they don't reenact it, but they're actually working through the trauma through their play. And, of course, kids do that naturally sometimes. Right. You just watch kids playing by themselves at home sometimes. You know, all children do that. Um, so some of that may be okay to follow. But if it starts to keep coming up and you start to have this feeling, this nagging feeling like, hmm, this child is trying to work through something, that might be a time for a referral. Do you recommend that therapists, um, you know, overtly name a, 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 tra- a traumatic situation or, you know, should do they refer to the traumatic situation or just kind of play along? You know, is, is, are there, you know, good things or bad things about that? Well, I think that when you as you start to name it, it starts to become part of the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So in, unless you're really clear that that's where you're going, I don't know that it necessarily makes sense to name it. But you certainly can name what you're noticing. I mm-hmm. notice you're 
you know, your, um, can, can you give an example, Teresa, and then I could sort of comment uh, on how you might. I'm trying to think uh, of something that's come up recently. Um, Maybe a child who's, um, you know, we have a lot of dolls, stuffed animals, things like that mm-hmm. around, who is maybe the child's now, you know, yelling at the doll or, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to smack you or, you know, something like that and kind of reflecting on that, the, the doll or the animal, um, perhaps a, a diff, you know, mm-hmm aggressive, very aggressive behavior mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. Sometimes we get sexualized behavior. Um, mm-hmm. and you go, oh, what's going, you know, what's happening? Well, where we go with that in the therapy is we shift to, if it looks like a reenactment or something that they can't get themselves out of, okay. you know, so they're moving into kind of a, a negative state and they can't get themselves out of it, that's when we think about, okay, what can we do now that we'll be regulating to this child? Mm-hmm. So does this, you know, does this child like to jump on the trampoline, or does this child like to jump into the pillows? You know, I might encourage the child to be doing something that will help make them feel better, okay. because sometimes they go into a more negative psychological state and they don't know how to get themselves out of it, and so that's you, a that's a trauma problem. Right. So to use the sensory input to try to pull them back into a state of regula- regu- regulation. So back they- into regulation and back into contact with you as the therapist. Okay. Because sometimes what happens is they lose track of you and you lo- no longer feel like you're in connection and you're working with the child. Mm-hmm. So I would think about, okay, what can I do to bring this child back into connection with me and back into a more regulated state? Okay. I think that's that's very helpful. Um, I mean, it's uh, I know it's it's always a challenge. You know, OT has its roots in mental health. That's where mm-hmm. we started, and uh, mm-hmm. I think that over the years uh, we're not getting as much of that in school these days as we mm-hmm. to. Um, you know, when I was in school, we had a lot of mental health. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, I think perhaps some of us older therapists feel a little more able to handle some of these things um, than what some of the younger therapists have come have um, but it's it's always a challenge because it's different uh, yes yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and just kind of related to that do you have any recommendations for any trainings uh, do you know of anything that would be good for therapists or teachers to get more knowledge more um, background um, any resources or references well, I can name um, three things, and these are a little close to home for me, but just so you know. Um, okay. OT, OTs are welcome to attend the SMART training. Okay. OTs, OTs have attended our SMART trainings, and I think, you know, I figure they pull out what is relevant to them, so you're welcome to do that. Um, the Trauma Center website has a, a long list of things to read, lots of publications. You have a good website too, I know. Lots of publications, um, links to things like the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and other resources related to trauma, um, lists of the various kinds of trainings that exist, et cetera. So it's, it's a good website for access to resources. Um, 
the trauma conference in the end of May is interesting sometimes for OTs. There's a lot of different speakers and workshops and that sort of thing. Um, Bruce Perry's model is totally consistent in my mind with the way that we think about things. Um, and I'm sure it probably, I think it's probably consistent with the way you think about things as yeah. well. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, he I, he's sort of broken down a lot of the functions into, you know, little pieces, sort of pieces that I think of as very um, consistent with the way OTs think about, you know, development, um, at least the way the last time I looked at it. Um, so... Yeah, I know. Um, um, one thing that was helpful for me, I don't know if you're from uh, what your thoughts are. Um, I know Mass, uh, the Massachusetts Advocates for Children, uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago, put out the um, that helping traumatized children learn. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's a nice little book um, just to, I think, increase trauma-informed care. Um, I, yes, I agree. I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that's a great resource and very and, helpful to take into schools. And it's free, I believe, isn't it, on their website? I think so. Yeah, I think I you think can get it's download. Free. I've um, given that to teachers. It's a good, nice thing to have in schools. <laughs> um, we have uh, one of our therapists saying that uh, their OT program at Quinnipiac uh, University had a big focus on mental health. <laughs> Oh, good, good. I'm so, glad to hear. I also think cross-consultation between the two disciplines is a great idea on cases. Yeah. I know we have um, people coming in to support our staff, and we've had a variety of, of folks, and that's just been so important. Right. It enriches and, and widens everybody's sort of perspective on a particular situation. Right. There's, it's, it's, there's no way you can't learn from that. Right. So um, our time is just about up, and I'd like to, if you don't mind, take a few minutes and open up the lines um, for the people who are on the phone. Um, okay. So those of you who are on the phone, please, 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 can you mute your phone so that if you do not have a question, we don't have all the noise because we probably have about a dozen people on on phones, and if I uh, unmute you, we're going to have a huge amount of noise um, if you don't mute your phone. If you have questions, please feel free to speak. Um, Before I do that, just a quick question. Someone asked about the name of the book I just mentioned. Um, The name of it is Helping Traumatized Children Learn, um, and it is um, from the Massachusetts Advocates for Children. Uh, it's the Trauma and Learning Policy Initiative. And if you go to the Mass Advocates for Children website, um, I believe that they um, have that as a, available as a download um, for free. Um, and I know you oh, can they have it as a download. That's great. I think it's a download. Um, and if not, you can at least order this. So I'm going to un- unmute folks here. And anyone who's on the phone um, can feel free to ask questions. And um, anyone, oh, she says she just found it, and it is a free download. So that's that's, terrific. that's a good resource. Um, we had one person just want a, a couple of examples for bringing the child back um, that you uh, you might have used. And 
I don't know what your thoughts are, Liz, but I know I'm thinking of basic sensory modulation strategies, deep pressure, mm-hmm. swishing under the pillows, um, you know, the jellos, maybe bouncing them in a spandex hammock. Um, what are some things maybe you've done? Jumping yeah, I mean, point. whatever. I mean, the one thing we learned a lot about this from Jane, about watching what the child is doing and following the child's lead. So, you know, if you notice the child doing something, so for example, we have this lovely tape where the child was taking a puppet and the puppets were whacking each other and hitting each other and nothing the therapist could do could change that. And But then she noticed that he was kind of jumping one of the puppets on the trampoline a little bit. So she shifted it to they were, he was going to, or she was going to jump and then he was going to jump on the trampoline. And that was an important turning point. So instead of staying with a puppet jumping, she shifted to to the boy jumping. And then he fell into one of the pillows and he started to pull another pillow over him. So then she introduced deep pressure. He wanted it. He liked it. She asked him if she could try it and he said yes. We We take an invitational approach always. You know, would you like this? And if the child said yes, we go with it. And if they say no, we don't. So, but the, she was following little things she noticed that he was doing. Great. Do we have uh, the phone lines are open now? So, if you have a question, please. Teresa, uh, this is Joan Dostal. Oh, hi, Joan. Hello. Hi. Um, I guess I have a comment as much as probably more than a question. Um, is to for people to not give up too quickly on trying to find a way to fund the co-treatment or collaborative treatment. Um, We had a grant through United Way, and it has been amazing the change that and and the speed of change that we're seeing in some of these. They're young children under five with OT, speech, and a mental health professional treating them at the same time with the family and Mm -hmm. being able Mm -hmm. to do that dance in and out of what the child needs, what the parent needs. They do a lot of attachment work and, and it's right. It doesn't make a lot of money. I mean, it wouldn't survive on its own without the grant. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is, it is just so exciting to see um, the change and the data so far is just beginning, but it's looking just so positive. So don't give up on that idea because um, <laughs> okay. I think it really is a wonderful way to intervene. And it's so hard as individual clinicians because we see kids in the clinic as well to do that by yourself. It's just hard to back in and out of the trauma work, you know. So Well, the, the insurance model that we're, we're based in does not permit for this, and that yeah. has been the problem. I think it is a grant-based kind yeah. of endeavor. Yeah. So. I think the only other way to make it work is if you have insurance services for one professional and private pay for the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you can make it work. But at some point, it, it almost has to be private pay for both, or for one at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so other questions? Thank you, Joan. That's that's great to hear. I'm, it's, it's exciting to hear that the, your project is moving right along. Anyone else? Anybody on the computers have a final question? Okay, um, we have a question about any advice on addressing trauma in those nonverbal kids who are um, really delayed 
but perhaps manifesting those symptoms um, of behavioral dysregulation and trauma. Um, so let's talk there. Well, that's one of the things this our model is premised on is that it's not dependent on language. And so, you know, I would think that the focus would be on regulation through the sensory motor play. Um, and then perhaps the children will create games with you, some of which might have a flavor of being a trauma game. So, for example, um, a lot of our kids like to play various kinds of dodgeball games. And what I, the way I've come to understand those is that their experience is of trauma coming at them, and they need to and want to learn that they can protect themselves. And so through the dodgeball game, there's, there's a whole exploration that they do of how do I protect myself from this ball coming at me. Um, so they may create games, which are nonverbal games, but have some aspect of reworking that traumatic experience of feeling active and able to take care of oneself and to um, fight off whatever it is that, you know, is coming at them. So if you can think about the games as perhaps having that kind of flavor to them, um, it might be useful. Right, and the question is at the toddler level, and I think um, that that's what she is talking about, that these kinds of strategies, I think, are, are useful across the board. Um, it's, it's really looking at following that child's lead um, in terms of what they're trying to tell you. Yes, and I've seen toddlers create some pretty elaborate, um, elaborate kinds of games, often involving their caregivers. Right. Um, so gaining a sense of control, for example, in their life by having their caregivers do what they want them to do, you know, that kind of thing. And we, we've got another question about how do we diagnose that if the symptoms really seem more rooted in trauma, should we be treating it as SPD? Um, I would say yes. I mean, you have to treat the sensory piece. I mean... <laughs> You know what I mean? You have to you have to treat the SPD. You're gonna you're gonna treat it very similarly from the sensory perspective, but being aware of the trauma piece and perhaps making a referral out to a psychotherapist uh, for the trauma support. I mean, is is would that be your thought? What, you know? um, for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so many of the kids have you know they have wide developmental needs. Right. And so I often think of it as the more input they can get at when they're young, the better. Yeah. Because I, I, you're, you're, yeah. I don't think it's an either-or, Kate. Uh, no. Yeah, it, it's not an either-or situation. It's really a both situation. Um, so, you know, if it's sensory, if there's sensory issues, we need to be treating those. All right. Well, it looks like we're wrapping up. Thank you very much for uh, sticking with us a little bit longer and for, for going a little over time. Uh, our, our time's up, and we'd like to thank everyone for uh, joining us and uh, watch our website and mailing list for more details. And uh, thank you very much, Dr. Warner. Uh, that was a, an amazing uh, chat, and I, I hope uh, everyone found it as useful as I did. Uh, thank you. Well, I
and thank you for um, giving me an opportunity to give back to Jane Jane Kumar's um, place. She made a wonderful contribution to our work, so very we're very appreciative. Well, thank you. I know she uh, would be very happy to be uh, seeing all this great information coming in, so I, I really appreciate mm-hmm. it as well. And um, thank you to all of our participants for joining us for our live talk um, series, Sensory Integration and Mental Health Series, and watch our website at www.thespiralfoundation.org for our next live talk presentation um, and to obtain copies of past programs. So thank you, everyone, and have a great evening. Okay. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.